Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Ken Starr, author of Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Lee. Thank you. So for anyone who may be unfamiliar with your backstory, could you please give us a quick rundown of how you came to be in charge of the Office of the Independent Counsel and the investigation into Bill and Hillary Clinton? Well, I was very uh, privileged to uh, have two uh, law clerk uh, positions uh, right after law school. Uh, The first on the great old Fifth Circuit for the United States Circuit Judge David Dyer in Miami. And when I say the great old Fifth, before the division from the uh, into two circuits, the Fifth and the Eleventh. Then I was privileged to clerk for Chief Justice Warren Berger at the Supreme Court. I practiced law. I became a partner at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., uh, and then served during the Reagan administration as Chief of Staff to Attorney General William French Smith, then uh, appointed, thankfully, by President Reagan to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, where I served for six years. Uh, then uh, I was asked uh, during President Bush 41's uh, administration to leave the court, which I did not want to do, and to return to the Justice Department. And I did. I served as Solicitor General during that term of President Bush 41. Then with the election of 92, I returned to private law practice and began teaching at New York University School of Law. Uh, And then in 1994, Congress reauthorized the Independent Counsel statute, as it was then called, and I was asked by the special division of the three-judge court uh, of the District of Columbia, my former court, to serve as the independent counsel to take the place of a very distinguished uh, lawyer, Bob Fisk, from Davis Polk and Wardwell in New York, and Bob had been appointed by Attorney General Janet Reno at the request of President uh, Clinton to serve as independent counsel or special counsel appointed by the Attorney General. Then, when the Congress saw fit, effective January 30 of 1994, to reauthorize these independent counsel provisions, the special division chose not to appoint Bob Fisk in that capacity, but to appoint someone entirely outside. Uh, the realm of the Clinton Justice Department. And so that's uh, how I was called, and uh, I responded to the call to uh, to serve. So that's how it came to be. So that was the start of this saga for you. And as you go into In Contempt, you know, you may have thought that this was perhaps a six-month assignment, and it turned into a much longer one and affected you and your family and your life in ways that you, I'm sure, never really saw coming. But what made you decide to write this book at this time now to talk about your side of the story some 20 years later? Well, a lot of time had indeed gone by, and my personal circumstances were such that I had the freedom to take on another writing project. Uh, I had just completed the book about my experience as president of Baylor University, and I so enjoyed that writing project, just as I had 
years earlier writing a book on the Supreme Court of the United States. And we also were coming up on the 20th uh, anniversary of the most uh, controversial and difficult phase of the investigation, the uh, impeachment and trial of President Clinton. So I thought that the time was right and that it was essentially Lee sort of now or never. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found really interesting, as someone who I was in high school, essentially, during the Whitewater investigation and the impeachment trial, and many of the things that I thought I remembered or had impressions about, you know, there really was a different accounting. Has it been strange to you over these 20 years to watch a historical narrative form around events that you took part in? Yes, it has, because there was so much of reality that did not find itself into the public domain, into the press. And one of the key examples is that uh, I had a wonderful cadre of career prosecutors uh, around me, and we seriously considered seeking the indictment of Hillary Rodham Clinton before the Little Rock grand jury expired, and the term of the grand jury expired in May of 1998. And that story had never been told. I mean, that fact had, to my knowledge, never come out. There was a sort of analysis of it during the the very acrimonious uh, trial of criminal contempt of Susan McDougall, who had been convicted during the primary Whitewater case of serious felonies. But the point is, there was so much of the story that hadn't been told. And so I felt it would be helpful to the historical record to uh, amplify and fill in missing details. And when you're in the process of filling in these missing details and trying to help compile this information towards the historical record. You know, this is a memoir. You know, it's not a work of complete nonfiction, like research nonfiction, like you did with, say, your book on the Supreme Court. What was your writing process? How did you try to reconstruct the full investigation and and what was going on at, at what part? Was that easy for you or did you have to consult notes? Well, I had no notes. Uh, all of my notes uh, are in uh, the archives, the federal archives. So I literally took nothing with me by way of documentation. So it began with memory, and then I did rely on, to refresh my recollection, secondary materials, books by different actors. For example, James McDougall, the president and first lady at the time of business partners, and Hillary's client, a co-owner with his spouse, Susan, of Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan, which is a fraud-infected institution, which had provided some of the resources for the Whitewater uh, Land Development Company that, again, the McDougals and the Clintons were uh, business partners in that. Well, Jim wrote a very provocative book published posthumously entitled uh, Arkansas Mischief, so I would use sources like that, James Stewart, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Bloodsport, but it was really to refresh my recollection. And then I did consult with a number of my quite senior uh, colleagues when there would be gaps in my recollection, but it essentially is my memoir, my recollection. 
as our listeners may just get kind of an idea from what you just said, the Whitewater investigation involved so many actors, so many different moving parts and allegations. I think that many Americans are kind of confused at this point in 2018. What was this all about? Do you have a way to give us kind of a concise summation of what started this before this became about Monica Lewinsky and improprieties in the White House of a sexual nature? How did the Whitewater investigation start? It actually began with press reports. So the fourth estate uh, played a very important role, resulting in a number of questions being raised after President Clinton's uh, election. And the political pressures then emerged as to whether there had been a proper investigation by federal authorities into the collapse of Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan. And so President Clinton himself directed Janet Reno to appoint a special counsel, as we now call them, they were called independent counsel then. And so she did. In January of 1994, she acceded to the president's directive and appointed Bob Fisk. Bob Fisk was an officer of the Justice Department. So think of Bob Mueller, appointed by the acting attorney general, Rod Rosenstein. That was uh, Bob Fisk. He was personally appointed and given a mandate by Janet Reno. I then, about eight months later, inherited that mandate. And so when I go to Little Rock as the statutory independent counsel, having been appointed by the three judges who had the appointing authority under the independent counsel statute, I simply stepped into Bob's shoes. And what I found in stepping into Bob's shoes is that he had several different investigations going on, quite apart from, related to, but quite apart from, the financing of the Whitewater Land Development Company and whether there was fraud, as there was, in those transactions. Here's an example. The Associate Attorney General of the United States, a former Rose Law Firm partner of Hillary Clinton, Webster Hubble, was under investigation for fraudulent billings, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That was in Bob Fisk's portfolio, which I inherited. An investigation into federal crimes in connection with the 1990 Clinton gubernatorial campaign involving a rural bank 50 miles outside of Little Rock, essentially laundering money in violation of federal law, that was underway. I can keep going. There were so many different dimensions of what was called as an umbrella term the Whitewater investigation. Now, I need to mention one other thing. The death of Vincent Foster Jr. Did he commit suicide? And if so, why? Vincent Foster Jr. was a law partner of Hillary Clinton, uh, was involved in the uh, representation of Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan. Again, the fraud infected SNL that collapsed in Little Rock that, again, Hillary represented as their lawyer. Uh, the Madison Guarantee lawyer. So Bob had conducted uh, an investigation into the death of Vincent Foster. And the reason I want to mention that now is 
one of the witnesses in the Vince Foster investigation was the person who brought us the information about Monica Lewinsky's perjury and the perjury and other crimes against the rule of law by President Clinton. And that person was Linda Tripp. Linda Tripp had been the executive assistant to Vince Foster in the West Wing of the White House. Now, I'm glad you brought up the investigation of Vince Foster's suicide. I found it interesting you talk about, you use this phrase, the paranoid strain in American politics. As someone who does investigations and looks into the facts of the case, and, you know, as you say in the book, all the evidence that you were able to find proved beyond a reasonable doubt to you that Vince Foster had committed suicide. Yet these conspiracy theories surrounding his death persist. How do you think we as, you know, media consumers, as Americans, how should we approach conspiracy theories? Do you believe that there are widespread conspiracies or that this is, as you say, a paranoia that we have as Americans? Well, in this particular case, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind, as well as the mind of all of those with whom I worked uh, over the very many months of this investigation, that uh, Foster did, in fact, it was a great tragedy, a terrible tragedy, take his own life. I was, likewise, very focused on the issue of why. Why would he take his life? And that inquiry, I think, helped the reasonable observer understand, and that's one of the purposes of the memoir, to say here are additional dimensions to the work and activity of Vince Foster, Jr., And my own theory, as you see in the book, is that he wasn't fortunately involved in the removal of improperly of billing records showing that Hillary had, in fact, performed legal services. Those billing records in the pre-electronic days had been stolen, removed from the Roosevelt firm, and brought to Washington, D.C., where they were found eventually in the most private rooms in the White House, (laughs) in the book room, where Hillary was writing a a, a book. Now, I say all that to come back to the conspiracy theory. I felt it important to make it crystal clear what the evidence was, and so we have a 100-plus page report that I think is definitive. Now, that is not going to prevent someone who chooses, in the face of facts, to espouse a totally unfounded theory. But an unfounded theory is doomed eventually to be rejected by, the, I would say, the enormous mainstream of Americans, thoughtful observers who, once they focus on the facts, the facts, as John Adams famously said, that they are flinty things. And so the conspiracy theories, I think, have been completely exploded in this instance. As a general matter, conspiracy theories tend not to be (laughs) well-founded. There are conspiracies, to be sure, criminal conspiracies, but the paranoid strain in American politics is one that suggests that some terrible, sinister plan was afoot at very high levels here to take the life of Vincent Foster, Jr., and that range of conspiracy theories, again, was just completely unfounded. To pivot a little bit, 
I think that one thing many people probably don't know is that you sat on the board of editors at the ABA Journal, which is my magazine. And you actually open up the book. You're talking about your own childhood, your formative years in college. And you mentioned that you yourself, when you were at Harding College, engaged in some journalism and stood up against the president, uh, disagreed with an editorial you'd written, and you did end up transferring. So I do believe through your writing that you, you and through your actions for us at the ABA Journal that you absolutely support the fourth estate, as you say, the important function we serve. And at the same time, you have had some very negative encounters with the press. You mentioned um, an interview you did with Stephen Brill, and then, you know, a Diane Sawyer interview you felt did not really portray you accurately. As someone who has both defended the press and, you know, feels that you did not get a fair shake from the press, how do you look at the role of the media in American civic life? Absolutely indispensable. And the question really boils down to, is the particular journalist, is the institution itself, is it uh, focused on and interested in a fact? Is it uh, a truth-seeking? Well, let me make it more personal. Is the reporter in question, the journalist in question, a truth seeker, or is he or she in a different category? And as you saw from the book, that was the bipolar world, as it were, that I viewed the press. And happily in the arena, the very large category of truth seekers, were some fantastic human beings in the so-called mainstream press. I uh, anoint, so to speak, Jeff Gerth. I can elaborate because my editors edited a number of these names out. Jeff Gerth, Steve Labaton uh, of the New York Times, Sue Schmidt, among others, of, of the Washington Post, uh, Lisa Myers of NBC News. I could keep going down this list of folks with whom I personally dealt and who, to my mind, based upon what I saw, were really interested in the truth. Then there were those who, and I put Stephen Brill in this category, who was launching a new magazine called Brill's Content, which did not do well. But I did not do well, and I certainly disserviced the investigation. My colleagues, to whom I apologize for my poor judgment in sitting down with Stephen Brill, who turned out to be disreputable and he was dishonest. Uh, so there are going to be dishonest uh, reporters and journalists uh, who simply have a perspective, and they're going to say whatever needs to be said to support that perspective. And you know, I'd say, well, you're painting with a very broad brush. Stephen Brill isn't here to defend himself, but the record shows that Stephen Brill did, in fact, admit that he had misquoted a, uh, a journalist. Uh, he had mischaracterized what journalists told him in writing that huge article that had such national attention at the time. It was a huge tempest in our, in our teapot. So are journalists being honorable and honest? Are they trying to seek to foster and further an agenda, a political or a personal uh, agenda? So, uh, But democratic societies, we, as we know it, cannot exist without an honest 
uh, press, and happily, and I fully support the constitutional protections that have emerged in our country in contrast to the mother country, so that the uh, journalists enjoy a wide range of constitutional protections going back to New York Times versus Sullivan, which I think is rooted in the First Amendment. We want journalists to be able to go about their work without fear of finding themselves in the courtroom, except for the most extreme sort of circumstances of unprofessionalism. Speaking of news coverage, your investigation into the Clintons entered the news again surrounding Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings before he became a justice of the Supreme Court. And there were additional criticisms levied against the way that the Office of the Independent Counsel had conducted that investigation. Did you want to respond in any way to some of that or or comment on Brett Kavanaugh and the controversy surrounding his nomination? Well, the nomination, I thought, was superb. I worked very closely with Brett Kavanaugh. He, in fact, was the principal architect of the Vincent Foster death uh, report. And then he worked at my right hand, so to speak, uh, in preparing the referral to the House of Representatives uh, and on to the Judiciary Committee. A person of complete integrity and honor. And so uh, I completely believe in, in now Justice Kavanaugh. I'm thankful that he did make it through what was, of course, a very difficult situation for everyone uh, involved in Frankly, it was very difficult for the, for the country as, as, as a whole. But he is now serving. I think he will serve with great distinction because working alongside of him, I saw him treat every human being with complete dignity, appropriateness, professionalism, decorum. And that has been his way of life for literally decades. So I think he's going to uh, be a, a great justice. He was a wonderful colleague in the Independent Counsel's office, and then he also, I should say, Lee, was also my partner at the law firm where we served uh, together. Now, he went pretty quickly into the president's uh, administration under President Bush 43, but I had recruited now Justice Kavanaugh to the law firm back in 1994, and then when I found myself appointed as Independent Counsel, holding him, as I still do in the highest regard, I asked then lawyer Brett Kavanaugh to come alongside and serve uh, with me uh, on the staff of the Independent Counsel's Office. And he did so with great uh, brilliance and complete professionalism and integrity. Now, you address the Me Too movement in the book, and you talk about how public morals or public attitudes towards sexual misconduct have changed and, indeed, the allegations by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and others against Kavanaugh were sort of folded into this umbrella. What do you think about the way we have started to reevaluate what constitutes sexual misconduct or sexual assault and how we address that both through the legal system and then as a you know community of Americans? Well, I think we as a society are much more sensitive uh, and sympathetic to uh, issues of, especially in the workplace, not exclusively in the workplace, but just the way we treat uh, one another as human beings. 
and that individuals who possess power should be held accountable if that person is taking advantage of the power position uh, and behaving in a way that is corrosive and denying of the human dignity and autonomy of, of another person. So I applaud this. And yes, I do say in the book that uh, the culture shifted quite tremendously in that allegations against President Clinton for his conduct toward many women. But let's just stay with Paula Corbin Jones, who gave rise to the litigation, which was civil rights litigation. She alleged sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, you have the right as an American citizen to have your case heard fairly and properly. And that means that the rules of the court have to be obeyed. What President Clinton did was first try simply not to be held accountable in the first instance by saying extravagantly, I thought, that I don't have to face a civil litigation during the course of my presidency. Well, he lost that proposition nine to nothing in the Supreme Court. And that, of course, included two justices, Ruth Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, who he had himself appointed. That's how unfounded his claim was to be above the law. But then when the litigation unfolds, he then continues to be above the law by taking the extraordinary step of committing perjury. And eventually he had to confess that he had committed perjury in the civil deposition case. Now, what was happening to Paula Corbin Jones? She was being vilified. She was being attacked and assailed by the Clinton White House. I just don't think that could ever happen and with impunity. I realize there are current issues involving the current president, and those issues, I think, are being looked at very differently by society than was the case with President Clinton. Imagine an NBC News report of Juanita Broderick that she was forcibly raped, raped by Bill Clinton, an aspiring candidate for governor, during the time that he was the Attorney General of Arkansas. Yet NBC News, the reports are, tried to squelch the story. That's, I think, so unthinkable now that anyone would squelch a story like, I mean, anyone in, in the Fourth Estate would squelch a story that goes to the fundamental integrity of someone seeking the nation's highest office. And then you mentioned the current president and the issues that are being looked into now. I see a lot of confusion, and I confess I have some confusion myself, as to what is the difference between, say, Robert Mueller's status and investigation now in the kinds of powers that he's given and the Office of the Independent Counsel as it existed when you were running it. What are the the differences in that? And you've actually, you know, you in 1999 argued against the reauthorization of the Independent Counsel Act. Can you talk a little bit about why you felt an independent counsel, an office of the Independent Counsel, was inappropriate and how you see the function of special counsels like Robert Mueller? Yes, we have with the regulations that Janet Reno, under President Clinton, put into effect in 1999, we have restored the way it should have been all along. <laughs> that is to say, the independent counsel statute put the appointing authority and power outside the executive branch and put it in 
the judicial branch, where I did not feel as a matter of policy as well as constitutional law, it belonged. So now Bob Mueller is appointed by the Attorney General, or in this instance, the acting Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein. He reports to him. He's under the day-to-day administration in terms of strategy. He's assured independence. I don't want to overstate the point. But he nonetheless reports to the Attorney General, the acting Attorney General, as illustrated by the fact that key indictments that have been returned under Bob Mueller's probe, and I have great confidence in Bob Mueller and his integrity, have been reported out or published by the Attorney General, the Justice Department. Now, it's one level that seems technical and formalistic, but as a practical matter and as a separation of powers level, it is much more healthy. The second huge difference is the special counsel statute, the independent counsel statute, pointed toward impeachment. By its very terms, the statute talked about impeachment and created a very low threshold of reporting requirement by the independent counsel to report to the House of Representatives, where whenever substantial and credible information, those are the key terms, came to the independent counsel that an impeachable offense may have been committed, the current regulations don't speak of impeachment at all. And one of the lessons, I think, to be drawn from the book, Lee, is be careful about impeachment. Impeachment was meant by the founding generation to be a tool for the most extreme kinds of circumstances. And now we know even the commission of felonies, such as perjury and obstruction of justice, for which the president was held in contempt, that's the name of the book, those don't necessarily rise to the level of an offense that should result in the president's removal. Our country wants stability. We don't want elections overturned. So especially given a lot of the current noise in the system about impeachment, I hope that the book will serve, among other things, as a note of caution about the use of that constitutional tool. And then if there's anything that you would want readers of Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation, to walk away with, particularly people who may not have been as aware or looking at the news or paying attention the first time around, what would that be? What is the message you hope people walk away from the book with? Honesty in government is pivotally important. It is non-negotiable. And there are mechanisms in place, the independent counsel, but now the special counsel mechanism to assure that we do have honest government. Our system is a healthy system, even with all of the rancor, even with all the acrimony, our system of checks and balances works. When you compare the American experience, including what's unfolding right now in this year of 2018, with what's unfolding in other countries, presidents being sent to jail, prime ministers being sent to jail for corruption and the like, in our country, we simply will not tolerate corruption and other offenses against honest government. And that ultimately is why the President of the United States, the only one in American history, was held in contempt by a federal district judge because he had contempt for the rule of law. Okay. Well, Ken, if readers are interested in checking out contempt or maybe corresponding with you, how could they do so? 
the best way to check it out is to go wherever books are sold, <laughs> including on the uh, Internet. And so the publisher is Penguin Random House, the Sentinel Print. And then to communicate, the best way is through my publicist, who is Allie, A-L-I-E Coolidge at Penguin Random House. And then what's next for you? Do you have any plans in the works? Well, first of all, I'm practicing law. I have returned as off-counsel to the Lanier Law Firm in my native state of Texas, and so I'm enjoying very much uh, legal projects. And then I do have in mind the next book, uh, which is the working title in my mind is America's Culture of Freedom, uh, because there are always tests and strains on our culture of freedom, and so I want to reflect uh, on that. But I am also very engaged in issues of religious freedom here at home and around the world, serving on two nonprofit boards that seek to inculcate a courage, a culture of freedom. And then I've resumed my volunteering in our local public high school. I've always been involved in public education, in addition to higher education. And so very recently I was back in the classroom at Waco High School in Waco, Texas. Well, thank you for joining us, Ken, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. If you're reading a book that you think we should check out, go ahead and contact us at books at abajournal.com.